As we're now seated, please open the Word of God to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 11 through 14 and study together the Lord's Word. We've been studying together, and so much here, so deep, so wide, so relevant, so urgent, important for us. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Father God, we praise you for your word and the truth of the gospel, God, that we are not made to live like Jews. Lord, we're not made to live like anyone but Christ. Lord, I pray that you would enable that, empower that within us, Lord, as your spirit works in our hearts and minds through your word, that you would receive all the glory, all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we've been studying this letter together, and we're not going to review everything we've been talking about all over again, but ever since chapter 1, verse 11, through this passage this morning, Paul's been laying out a case for why this gospel, the one in the Scriptures, the one about Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Scriptures, why this is the only right one, the only true one. The certainty of that is not in us. It's not in how it makes us feel. It's not what we think about it or what it does. It's really not in us at all. It's revealed to be true as it reveals the glory of God. Now, I was thinking about that. I've been thinking about that for a few weeks now. What does that mean, the glory of God, for for the glory of God? It's a simple phrase. It's an elementary meaning that just seems kind of obvious for us, but if you ever try to put it into words, you might might just kind of stumble a little bit and say, well, it's it's glory. Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to define the word with the word. It's it's big. It's it's glorious. What, What do we mean when we say all things should be for the glory of God, that the gospel brings glory to God? Well, the Hebrew word most commonly translated glory is kavod. It's the root, uh, it's, it's the word that means glory, but the root of the word actually has a, the sense of weightiness, of heaviness. There's an importance and, and a weighty glory that's due God. It's honor, it's respect, it's reverence, and it can be due to God or people, right? I mean, people can get glory for themselves, and they can get it by dignity or wealth or accomplishment or high position, um, Actually, today, they can get it just by being famous or just being ridiculous, right? People get all kinds of glory for themselves, acting ridiculously on social media or um, any manner of media at all. They, they can get glory for themselves. But it's generally, it's generally seen as just empty hubris, just arrogance to try to elevate a person above other people, isn't it? I mean, for, for most people, in, at least in the Western world, in the Western thought, it, it's just... It's arrogance to be elevated above people in importance or, or that somebody's glory would make them above or elevated above other people. 
from the lowest to the, and, and basest reasons up to the highest positions of kings and queens, or, or if somebody has riches, or if they're competent in something, those allow a certain extent of glory, of, of, of respect for people, of, of recognition for those people. But human being glory is limited because no one has inherent worth over anybody else. Just because I'm good at something doesn't make me better than you, or just because you're better doesn't make you better at something, doing something doesn't make you more worthy than me of respect or dignity. It's limited among human beings. The Greek word most commonly translated glory is doxa, and it's used in mostly the same ways. It's, it's used of a person, how they've earned a certain level of honor and glory and respect among people. But in both Hebrew and in Greek, the two largest original languages of the Bible, the vast majority of the uses of glory is used of God, not of people. And the crucial difference between the uses of glory for God and the use of glory for people is that there is no limitation for the glory of God. God's glory includes his position, his exalted position. It includes his accomplishments, all the things that he's done. It includes his wealth because he literally owns everything. But the glory of God doesn't stop with some things that he has or things that he's done. The honor and respect and reverence glory that God is worthy of includes all of that plus his character His person, his purity, his holiness, every one of his perfections or characteristics, God is the glorious one. He exists as glorious. So it's not just what he does or what he has or what he has done or will do, like with humans. God is glorious for those reasons, but he's worthy of honor and respect and reverence and obedience simply because of who he is as God. So he is therefore above all others. In his existence, in his, in his basic existence as God, he exists above all in gloriousness. Psalm 24, 7 calls him the king of glory. And who is the king of glory? Verse, seven, verse 10 says, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And that, by the way, that Lord of hosts, um, Yahweh Tzabaot, That's the phrase there, and you might recognize that from that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We sang it last week. Um, Lord Sabaoth, his name, if you've ever wondered what that means, that's Lord of hosts. The the Lord of hosts, the, the innumerable, powerful, formidable armies of heaven, all of the armed angels that are more powerful than we are and able to do more than we can do, God's in charge of them. He's their all-powerful commander, the king of glory, the matchless sovereign one of glory. That's who Yahweh, our Lord God, is. All glory begins and ends with God. Psalm 29.2 gives this command to those heavenly beings. It says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. It's due him. He deserves it simply because of his name, which, which is all that he is, all that we know about him. Revelation 14 gives this command to every human being and every person on the earth, those who dwell on the earth, every nation and tribe and language and people. Here's what he says, fear God and give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. So he's due because of his existence. He's due because of what he's done. But when we're brought into his presence at the end, Revelation 21 says, when we're with God, there will not be any need for light from a lamp 
or the sun or the moon or anything else because Revelation 21 says the glory of God gives light and its light is the Lamb. That's the glory of God. He's all glorious. That's why we said in Psalm 29, he's the king of glory. In Acts 7, 2, he's the God of glory. Ephesians 1, 17 calls him the father of glory. 2 Peter 1, 17 says he is the majestic glory. God is all glorious. He's full of glory. So we need to understand that God's existence is glorious, and that means that there is no need for any more glory to be given to God. There's no room for more. He's full of glory. He exists as glory. He doesn't need glory from you or from me. He's not depending on something from me outside of himself. You know, he's just waiting for me to give him what what he needs, what's due him. So what do we mean when we say we want to glorify him and that the gospel brings glory to him? Remember, that's what Paul said, that the gospel in chapter 1 as he began, um, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever. This gospel is meant to bring glory to him. We saw it at the end of uh, verse 24 in, in chapter 1 of Galatians that, that the people glorified God because of Paul, because of the change in him. What do we mean then? If God's full of glory, he's not depending on us to give him any, why does he say that we need to glorify him, that this gospel glorifies him? Well, it's another part of the meaning of glory or to glorify. It points back to the reality of the glory of God. Here's what it means. God is all glorious. He's he's full of glory. He exists as glory. But then he created everything. Before the creation of, of everything, God had all glory. But now at creation, God brought into existence both living things and unliving things with the purpose of glorying him, which is to say that they would recognize his glory, that they would acknowledge his glory, and they would proclaim his glory. So we're not adding anything to him when we glorify him and when we bring glory to him. We're recognizing, which is what everybody can do. Romans 1 teaches us, remember? God's God's glory is clearly seen in creation. What the world does is then reject that and, and, and replace it with something else. But we recognize it and then we acknowledge it in our hearts and minds and we proclaim God's glory to those around us. If you're paying attention to recognize, to acknowledge, and to proclaim is to rap. You know, if you've been around, you know me, I like to come up with memory devices, ways of remembering things. So what does it mean to glorify God? It means to recognize, acknowledge, and to proclaim. Now, I've never really been into rap music (laughs) before, but we're all supposed to be rappers. (laughs) We're all supposed to be rapping the glory of God, recognizing, acknowledging, and proclaiming God's glory. That's why we exist. Why do we do that? Because it's right for us. It's right for everything to do that. Psalm 147.1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. He's worthy of it. It fits. It's right for God to be praised, to receive glory, because He's God. He's the God of glory, the King of glory. It's only right that His creation proclaims His glory. Um, As we said, all of creation already does that. The the rocks and the hills and the trees and the rock and the the, the water, the rivers, the the sky, the heavens, the animals, the plants, everything on earth and above earth and, and under the earth proclaims the glory of God rightly and fittingly, 
Even the angels that we can't see rightly proclaim the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, there are only two types of beings in the entire universe that do not continually glorify God as he intended. They're fallen angels like Satan, demons. The other is humanity. One day all demons and all humans will be brought into the rightful place of proclaiming the glory of of the name of Jesus when every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will be made to happen. But it's the continual refusal to recognize God as glory willingly before that time that makes us sinful, that 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 is what sin is, the continual rejection of God and His glory for my own sake, for what I want, for my own glory. In Romans 1, although they knew God, Paul says, they could see His glory by what He's made, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Those are essential parts of glory. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here it is. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And you keep reading the chapter and you you see that they exchanged the truth about God, His existence in glory. They exchanged that for a lie. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, remember that's part of glory, they, they didn't see fit to even acknowledge Him, let alone recognize or proclaim Him, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then there's a whole list of sins and all manner of unrighteousness that they're filled with, and they celebrate others who do that because we're all looking out for the glory of ourselves and the glory of humanity instead of God. And it's no wonder in that list you keep reading and they are those who do not give glory to God. God gives them up to a debased mind. It's no wonder in Romans 3.23 that it says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sin and we fall short of acknowledging, recognizing, proclaiming Him. Okay, so to summarize, God is already glorious. He's complete in glory. We were made to recognize, acknowledge, and proclaim that glory. It's good and right to do that. It's sin not to. It's our sinfulness that refuses to glorify Him. One day He's going to bring into subjection everything and everyone to bring glory to Him and recognize Jesus as Lord to His glory. That's the summary of what we've been talking about. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we are born all over again from inside, God replaces that continual rejection of God's glory with a new heart and a new mind that causes us to seek to glorify Him that makes us driven to recognize, to acknowledge, and proclaim the glory of God. Rather than run away from Him, we run to Him. Saving us makes us into those who glorify Him. And then as we begin to grow in obedience to Him, it's also for the glory of God. We now hopefully better understand this as the meaning of acknowledging and, and proclaiming Him as worthy of respect and reverence and honor and even obedience. 
This is what brings glory to God, and this is how it brings glory to God. He makes us new so that we love others instead of ourselves. We love Him more than anyone or anything, and that brings glory to Him. That's what we mean by this gospel brings glory to God. It doesn't add anything to God, (laughs) but it's that immediate and lasting change of bringing a God-glory-rejecting human into a God-glorifying human, a new creation that seeks God's glory, his, his reverence, his awe, his honor, what is due and what's right. So that's a part of how the gospel brings glory to God. That's how we glorify him. That's why we seek to do that in all that we say and that we do. And brothers and sisters, that's why it's such an apo- a convincing apologetic, such an, a convincing defense for this being the true gospel when you take a sinner and turn him into someone who's a saint glorifying God. That's why it's such a convincing apologetic that Paul's using here. So this gospel is not man's. It's, it's God's in chapter one. It came by direct revelation from Jesus. You remember it caused an immediate change in Paul's life. It was unexplainable by any other reason than God's work. It brought about a complete change from persecutor to preacher. <laughs> it brought about widespread knowledge of that, even to people that didn't know Paul. They knew the power of the gospel, and it glorified God. So we saw in chapter 2 so far, verses 1 to 10, we saw the glory of God as many people held firm in this gospel over many years. And then no challenge has been able to stand against it or, or bring this gospel down. We've seen um, the amazing power of God's gospel to remain true through years and through many challenges. And then we saw the inexplicable fellowship between people of all different kinds, <laughs> all different kinds of people drawn together and holding firm together around this gospel. All of that brings glory to God. But when we, brothers and sisters, when we believers sin... Well, that's when we act more like unredeemed people than redeemed people. That's when we act more like demons than redeemed people, when we sin, when we mess up. And so that's why God's people in Jesus begin to sin less and less, but we feel it and see it more and more. We hate it more and more. We want to grow more in conformity to the image of Jesus. We want to grow less like ourselves in sin. Because sin is an attempt at robbery of the glory of God. That's what sin is, right? I I want what I want, God. I I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what you tell me to do. I don't want what you say. That's what sin is. And so as we grow in practical holiness, as we grow to become more like Christ, we seek God's glory. We seek to obey him and to, to love him and to love others. That's why it's such a telling sign in a person's life when there isn't growth in that way, when there's no desire to grow in conformity to God for his glory. But it also explains why we are accountable to one another and for one another. It explains that. So what we see in these verses is Paul confronting a fellow follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, a believer, And we need to understand that the reason for this being included is that Paul's not bragging on himself. He's not saying, hey, look what I did. Look how great I am. He's not saying, look, um, you know, I'm so wonderful and, and I'm so powerful. I'm above Peter or I'm better than other people. It's not a pat on Paul's back. The reason this is here is because he's showing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a divine gospel. It, it transcends above any human authority apostle or otherwise. 
If someone is claiming Jesus as Lord and Savior, they need to know if their words or actions aren't matching that. So Cephas here is the Aramaic version of the Greek name Peter. And Peter, you remember, he was one of the pillars of the church, one of the well-known, seeming to be influential people. People had placed him on a pedestal and probably higher than they should have. Paul says in these verses, I confronted this pillar of the church, the famous one. Again, not because I was jealous of him, not because I'm better than he is, but because he was proclaiming Jesus, but he wasn't acting like or living like Jesus. It was for the purpose of the gospel, verse, verse 14 says, the truth of the gospel. You may remember that phrase from verse 5, that the reason that Paul did not yield even for a second against the false teachers was to preserve the truth of the gospel. The reason that Paul is taking all of this so seriously, and we're going to get into what, why he gets in Peter's face and why it gets so serious, is because it's for the sake of the truth of the gospel. And you remember last week, the question was asked, how important is the gospel to you? How relevant is it to you in your life day by day? Is it for God's glory? Is it the most important thing to us? Is it worth rejecting false gospels for? Is it worth calling out false gospels for? Is it worth the uncomfortableness of confronting somebody who says, I believe this gospel, but I'm not saying or doing what accords with it, what aligns with it. I'm distorting it. Paul's showing us here that this gospel is worth it. The gospel transcends any and all authority that we might have on our own. But we might ask, well, what does it look like? How do we confront somebody? Have you ever wondered this? I mean, you know, somebody does something and I didn't really like it, so should I confront that person? Should I just leave it alone? Should I let it go? What does it look like? How do we work through that? Because we don't want to be just going around confronting everybody about every little thing, right? You know, I, I didn't appreciate that um, you didn't tuck your shirt in this morning. I'm very offended, and I need to confront you on that. No, that, would, that how, how exhausting and discouraging would that be, right? Just constantly nitpicking and everything. So we're not going to go around just picking on everybody, one another all the time, but we do have a responsibility for the glory of God to hold one another accountable, this is part of, this is why, why Peter was confronted by Paul. This is why this is included in here, because this gospel is important enough that we are here to hold one another accountable, to, to care for one another in these ways. As an example of this command, Colossians 3.16 is where the command is given for us for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. You say, that sounds good and, and biblical and everything, but what does that look like? He explains it with three participles where he says, we're teaching, we're admonishing, and we're singing. Teaching's where we give new information. It's where we say, here's the right path. Here's the word of God. Here's the right way. This is what we should be doing. Singing is what we do together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and and we're teaching and admonishing one another. That's part of how we do it. So there's the teaching, giving the right way, but then that word admonishing is when we've encountered one of us who's strayed off of the way. So there's a correcting, there's a giving more information of correction and warning and rebuke in love for one another. It's to counsel one another with the word, to reach their mind and heart to correct them. And that works for their good and God's glory. So that's what, it's, that's what it looks like when we're commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We're teaching, admonishing, and singing. It's what it looks like to obey Jesus' command to restore a sinning brother or sister to fellowship in Matthew 18. 
Again, that was Jesus' command to us. So not only does Paul demonstrate in these verses the overarching authority of God's gospel in each of our lives, that's his main point, he shows us how to confront one another. Because this is how I did it. This is the how. As we look at each verse, we're going to look at who, what, when, where, and why. We're going to see this together. So look at number one in verse 11, the preparation begun. The preparation begun. Paul's getting started here. There are two parts to this, the who and the why. When I'm trying to figure out who to confront, if I need to confront anything, who should we confront and why? So that first question in your notes, who do I confront? Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Paul went to the person, right? We've talked about this before. When when there was an issue, when there was sin, Paul saw it in Peter, so Paul went to Peter. He didn't go around to everybody else and talk about what Peter was doing. He didn't go get the other apostles. He said, I need to go talk to my brother. And sometimes we think, well, you know, this is the pastor's job. This is something the pastor should be doing. No, this is all of our jobs. In, in these verses, in Colossians 3, in Matthew 18, we don't say anything about go tell it to the pastor. It, you go to your brother or sister, and, and we confront one another. This is the reminder to us because none of us is above any others, any of the rest of us. The gospel of, of the truth of God in his gospel levels the field. We're all on the same place of needing God's grace. None of, us, none of us graduates beyond needing God's grace because of our sin, because we, we don't reach perfection. Jesus says in Matthew 18, we see it modeled here, Peter went, Paul went directly to Peter. So that's the who. If I've witnessed something, if there's an issue, if there's a problem, I need to go to that person, right? Why would I confront? That's the next question. We've seen the who, why. Should I confront or shouldn't I? Why would I? Why why would we go around confronting anybody? Paul says he confronted Peter because Peter stood condemned. He he wasn't blamed for doing something wrong. He was wrong. And there wasn't a rumor about it. There was no mistake. So this is a good consideration. This is is instructive for us. I mean, should I confront somebody? Why would I confront? Well, it was a sin issue. It was something that was wrong. It wasn't a preference, right? It wasn't an opinion issue. This was It says Peter stood condemned. He was guilty of a sin, not suspected, not a mistake. And if you're not sure about someone, it's okay, it's good to ask. Hey, I've noticed that you look like you're struggling with something. How are you doing? How's your prayer life? How's your Bible reading? What's your relationship with God look like? Are you struggling with something? You know, I thought I saw this. Is that what's happening? Is that what's going on in your life? Several years ago at another church, I witnessed a, a dear brother from our church exiting a liquor store, and he, like, he came out of the liquor store with a, a brown bag. He jumped in his car, and he drove away very quickly. And so I, I, I saw him on Sunday. I asked him, hey, I saw you the other day. That it looked like you were coming out of the liquor store. No, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> After about a week or so, he came up to me, and he said, look, you saw me. That, that was me. But he said, the doctor is working on my stomach issues. He doesn't know what's going on. He said, they've tried medication. They've tried different foods. They've tried different things. He told me to try some wine, a glass of wine every night to help my stomach issues, and it's been working. He said, I just didn't want somebody to think that I was going to the liquor store and buying this alcohol just to get drunk all the time. It's okay, brother. Thanks for sharing. I can pray for you. I can pray for stomach issues. I can pray that that continues to work for you, right? 
It's okay to ask. It's okay to be asked. We need to be able to, to be humble enough before one another to be asked and to, to, to be confronted and challenged. Hey, I saw this. Was that true? Is that what's going on? It, no question, you know, especially between husband and wife, right? Where have you been? What have you been up to? What's been going on? This is how we care for one another and look out for one another without being all offended. You know, how dare you ask me that? <laughs> why, why, how dare you challenge me about anything? No, that, that's why we're here. That's why God has us together with one another. So this was a sin that Peter was doing. It was a big sin. And we know all sin is wrong, right? I mean, every sin is wrong, but there's a difference between lying and murdering somebody, Right? There are big sins. The Bible talks about worse sin, worse punishment for sin. And Peter's sin was a big deal. It wasn't a little thing, and it wasn't a, a one-time thing. Now, as an aside, we do have the ability, brothers and sisters, to overlook little things done to us or one-time things, right? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, love is not irritable or resentful. You know, when we get together, someone's going to step on our toes. Somebody's going to offend me or someone's going to offend you in some way. We can, in love, not be irritable or resentful, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, not, not easily provoked to anger. You know, we're not walking around with a chip on our shoulder. As soon as someone knocks it off, we're ready to fight. You know, we're not resentful, easily offended, or a, another translation is keeping no record of wrongs. We can overlook little things, little petty things that, that don't need to be a big deal. But this wasn't a little thing. Paul couldn't just overlook what Peter was doing. He wasn't going around picking fights. This needed to be addressed. And so this wasn't also, this wasn't a rumor. This wasn't gossip about Peter. Hey, did you hear what Peter did? Man, you believe that guy? You know, gossip, brothers and sisters. Again, here's another aside, and I, I try not to take too many rabbit trails, but just, just for one second, the, the gossip is so destructive. It, it's so hurtful and terrible. Gossip is a sin. The, li the list of sins in, in Romans 1 that we talked about, uh, where, where there, there's murder and there's malice and envy and strife and deceit and maliciousness, he says they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Gossip is a sin. It's a crushing, grievous sin. So don't gossip. And when you hear it, here's what Proverbs says. It's the evildoer who listens to wicked lips. It's the liar who gives ear to a mischievous tongue. So it's not just the gossiper. It's the one who's listening to gossip. The one who's talking about other people, ripping other people apart. So don't act on gossip. You, you know, don't just, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, did you hear what, did you see what, hey, I want to tell you about Stop here. Stop there. Is this for the sake of, of glorifying God? Is this for edifying him or her? Is this to encourage or is this to gossip? Don't allow gossip. Don't participate in gossip. Encourage reconciliations. Okay, so, so it wasn't gossip about Peter, and it wasn't just assumed, and it wasn't just a mistake. It was sin, and it couldn't be overlooked. It had to be addressed. It had to be confronted. What kind of sin is big enough? Well, to Paul, it was anything that caused compromise of the gospel. That, that's what Paul said. Look, I've, I've got I've to confront this in my brother. I've gotta, we've got to deal with this together. It's this important. Remember, this is for God's glory and the other person's good. So if there's something continual going on in your brother's life or your sister's life, and it's just, it seems like it's a small thing, but it's a continual thing, that should be addressed. If there's something that's specifically listed as a sin, not just something that you don't like, but a sin, then we need to confront it. 
If there's something that's causing hurt to another person or other people, we need to confront something like that, right? Something that dishonors, that that prevents God's glory. The recognition, the acknowledgement, the proclamation of God. So that's why we would confront. We don't do it because it's fun. We don't do it because it's comfortable or we enjoy just going around having these difficult conversations. We do it for the person's good, for God's glory. Well, what was it that Peter was actually doing? That's number two, the problem defined. Verse 12, the problem's actually defined here. Paul says before certain men came from James, Peter was fine, but then he drew back. Jewish people were taught from a very young age, don't have anything to do with Gentiles. This is what Peter had come out of from Judaism into Christianity. In the book of Jubilees, written in 140 BC, the young man is taught there, separate yourself from the Gentiles, do not eat with them, do not perform deeds like theirs, do not become associates of theirs, because their deeds are defiled, and all of their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. It's kind of no question there how they felt about anyone who was not Jewish at the time, right? In other places, they were, they were taught that God's only gracious to Israelites. All other nations, he will terrify. If a man repents, God accepts him, but only if he's Jewish. These are the things that they were taught at the time. Uh, love all, but hate the heretics, <laughs> those, those who were Gentiles. That's what they were all taught. And it might be very difficult to break out of that, to come out of, a, of being raised that way your entire life. But Peter had already broken out of that. He'd already been eating with Gentiles. He had that, that vision from God to go to Cornelius' house. He, he went there. He ate with them. He's been eating here with Gentiles in Antioch. But then some people came from James, and there's debate over you know, what, what they were doing, if, if they really came from James with these, these instructions or if these were something they just came up with themselves. In any case, they came from James. They came from Jerusalem. They were Jewish men. They came, and all of a sudden, Peter withdraws from eating with Gentiles. Now, we have to understand also that eating here is not just our word for putting food in our mouth. That, that's what we think of when we hear eating, like I can eat anywhere, right? I mean, you can go to a food court and eat and put food in your mouth at home, alone, or with other people. But this is the word, it's, it's literally taking food with. So I'm with other people intentionally, with a group of people in fellowship associating with them, living with them. These, are, these were called agape feasts, love feasts. Kind of like a potluck, but, but more loving, <laughs> more, more joined to, together, more fellowship there that was involved. You remember, this is Antioch, the first, the first place that people were called Christians. They were together. They were, they were as Christ. And we looked at an example last week during the Lord's Supper of an agape feast, a love feast being divided and ruined by people splitting up over rich and poor, and, and they needed the rebuke. Here at, at Antioch, Peter was dividing over ethnicity. Now, you, you stay over there. I'm going to be here. And so what's supposed to be a picture of the gospel different kinds of people all coming together, united around the gospel. Peter draws back and separates. To draw back means to shrink back. He, he held back with the implication of fear. You know, it's like there's, there's something hot here, so I reach out to grab it and I, and I draw back. Oh, that's, that's going to hurt. The verb forms here indicate this was gradual. He, he, he began to separate himself. 
just kind of slowly taking a step away each time, each time just a little bit more, a little bit more, until it was obvious that he was making a division. He was separating himself. Peter was wrong to do this. Look, look at what motivated this at the end of verse 12. He said, it, said it, was, it was because he was fearing the circumcision party. He bought into the line that they were, they were selling, that they were given to him. He believed it and he feared it rather than fearing God. Maybe he was afraid that people would question his salvation. Maybe they were afraid that he would question his apostleship or that they would think less of him. But he was fearing who instead of God? Man. Fearing man instead of God. Now, we've talked about how we can fall into the same sin. How, how does this work? We hear something, we believe it, we fear it, we obey it. That's how it works in our heart and minds, and it can happen in a split second. It can happen w- within a moment. It can happen over time, so we don't even notice it. We hear something, we decide to believe it, we fear it, and then we begin to act on it. That's what Peter was doing. And we can't help everything that we hear. We've got to be able to stop this process at some point. We can't always control what we hear, though we should be doing a better job probably. There's so much in the world that's constantly feeding us opposite ideas of what God tells us, what God wants us to know. We can control some of that, but we can't control everything we hear. So what we're supposed to do is hear, compare with the Word of God. If it matches, believe it fear God and obey, instead of hear it, go along with it, fear it and obey, something that God has not said. This is why it was such a big deal. The church has no class divisions. There's no second class or third class or first class Christians. To act that way is to deconstruct the church. It's to put up the barriers that Jesus intentionally and powerfully broke down in the gospel. Ephesians 2 talks about how Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. We build those back up when we say, no, I'm sorry, you can't be a part of this. It's harmful to the gospel because it sets people up in different, different classes. You know, I'm, I'm less needy of God's grace. You obviously need God's grace a lot more. You go in your group. I'll stay in my group, right? Uh, Or I'm more deserving of God's grace because look at what I am. Look at what I've done. Whatever it is. Brothers and sisters, that's why we refuse so much. That's why we work so hard in our koinonia groups not to have a koinonia koinonia group for seniors only or for young married only or for young families only because we're not excluding people from fellowship with one another. It, It messes up the picture of the gospel. Even our discipleship times, we're having men and women discipleship times coming up. Those are separate because the men with kids can watch their own kids and care for them while mom's away, while, they're, while his wife is away in discipleship, and, and she can stay home and care for the kids while he's away growing with other men. So otherwise, we're not, we're not separating any other way. So what do I confront? The question here is the what. What should we be confronting? Well, the sin and the heart that brought it about. Remember the sin, as we just talked about, was making a distinction among God's people as if some were better or more deserving, but it was brought about by a man-fearing heart, and it it led to hypocrisy, as we see in verse 13. Hypocrisy is acting, pretending, right? Intentionally giving an impression of something that's not true or real. Peter knew it wasn't true, that some Christians were better than others, or there was a division this way. He said so in Acts 10. He agreed while he was meeting with them before. 
That's why Paul confronted him. He knew better. So should I confront? Well, does the person know it's a sin? Remember, we're supposed to be teaching one another. Here's the right way. Here's the truth. We've got to get that in first before we can just come in and start correcting, you know, get back on the right path. I didn't know there was a right path. We've got to start with that teaching, but, but we don't stop there. We, we confront the sin. We help the person see not just the sin, but the heart problem that brought it about. It was the fear of man. It, it, what's causing the sin in your life? Is it fearing man? Is it pride? Is it, what is it? What motivated that sin? That's where we come together to work together to restore one another so that we're not just criticizing. We're not just picking. We're saying, look, this is what I saw. This is what's happening. Is this a sin? Okay, what brought it about? How can we help you fix that part? How can we help you fix the heart of the sin, not just the obvious outside symptoms? And this is all for God's glory and for their good. That's what this confrontation leads to. That's why we're doing this, remember? In the world, if you confront somebody over something they're doing, you're probably going to have a fight on your hands, right? You know, you're just picking a fight. But in the church, instead, there should be thankfulness. There should be forgiveness. There should be love. Those were a couple of long points, weren't they? Problem defined. Number three. <laughs> Let's look at the, at the consequences. These, these number three in verse 13, we see the pervasive consequences. Or, or you can write permeating if you like that better. The, the, the idea is widespread. The, the consequences that are widespread. Look at the effect on others. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. We talked about it before. If somebody's sin is affecting other people, it needs to be dealt with. How was this sin affecting others? Well, they were falling into it as well. The rest of the Jews were separating themselves. And even Barnabas was led astray. This must have been incredibly convincing. A strong argument for some people to say, yeah, that's right, we should split. We should get away from those kind of people. And we should gather only these kind of people. Especially for a man as faithful as Barnabas was, as we talked about. But that's why I said before, we, you know, we need to make sure we don't think that we're above questions, that we're above the, the challenges, the, the, the checking up on one another. Sin spreads, it affects others. And the hypocrisy of Peter was spreading to the rest. So when do we confront? Well, we talked about if it's a big sin or if it's con con uh, continual. Here's another consideration. What effect is it having on other people? You know, should I confront something that I see in a brother's life or a sister's life? Well, how is it spreading? How is it affecting? How is it hurting other people? If other people are stumbling, it needs to be confronted. And you have 1 Corinthians 5 in your notes there. You can read about how the Corinthians were allowing sin. They even started celebrating it. They were proud of it, boasting about it. Paul said, no, you've got to address that now. <laughs> it needs to be addressed. Okay, number four, verse 14. Finally, we see here a public rebuke. A public rebuke. Now, Paul observed for himself the sin, the, the repeated sin, and had spread to others. It was clear they were not working, um, they, were, they were not walking correctly. The ESV translated it as in step. It's literally straight-footed. Here's the line of the gospel. Are you walking in parallel with it, or are you getting off track? That's what this in step means. It's, it's straight-footed, walking properly. The idea is they've gotten away from what they should have been conformed to. Conformity to the truth of the gospel. So the gospel is the same for everyone. It's always true. If you're not living according to it, you're living incorrectly, not correctly, and we need to be admonished and brought back in. 
It might be a little bit, it might be a lot, but it needs to be called out to be corrected. But our fellowship is based on that gospel. That gospel is what forms the basis for our fellowship. If it's based on anything else, this is what happens, division. If you base your fellowship on something besides the gospel, it's going to divide Christians. And this one came about because of circumcision, religious Judaism. It divided Christians. And anything that divided Christians should be, should be called out. It should be addressed and confronted. But how is a sin like this, when it's committed in public, it's got far-reaching consequences, how is that confronted and addressed? Well, publicly. So the question, where do I confront? Most of the time, brothers and sisters, it's privately. We talked about Matthew 18, where Jesus says, go to that person. We talked about it at the beginning, right? You go to that person. You don't involve a whole bunch of other people. You go and tell him yourself. But if he doesn't repent, if he doesn't if he doesn't believe you, if he, if he says, if I'm going to hold on to this sin, I'm going to keep doing this. Well, that's where Jesus says, bring one or two others with you. Well, it's, it's suddenly not private anymore. It's starting to become a little public. If they still don't repent, if they still don't believe you, he says, tell it to the whole church. Again, not as gossip. Again, not as, as, a, as a public tongue lashing, but as all of us get together and let's encourage this brother or sister who's sinning. Let's get together on this. Let's work together on this so it's no longer public at all or private at all. It's very public. But there are times even when that needs to happen right at the beginning, when, when that just needs to be the first thing that happens specifically in terms of pastors. In 1 Timothy 5, there's the protection of, against gossip. Do not admit a charge against a pastor, an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But if a pastor is sinning, this is what Paul says for, for those who are sin who persist in it, rebuke them in the presence of all. If a pastor's sinning, you've got you to do it in front of everybody. It's a public address. It's called for to be public. When, when that's where the sin is, that's where the rebuke is. So when someone is sinning and, and we've all tried to help this brother or sister, it becomes a public rebuke. Or, or when it's a pastor and, and it's a sin, then it needs to be a public rebuke. Otherwise, normally it's private. Hopefully this answers at least many of our questions about talking to people about sins, one another about sin, things that we see in each other's life. Paul laid out an excellent example here. But remember, his primary purpose was to say that this gospel is important enough. It came from God himself. It's what brings him glory. For that to continue happening, this is part of our job as loving one another, to, to, to confront, to ask, to check, to care. Now, we don't have any record of how Peter responded to this. You know, what did Peter do? Did he fight? Did he argue? Whatever. But we do have a letter from Peter later on, after, several years after this letter of Galatians. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter acknowledged that Paul had written things that were good for brothers and sisters to know. He says that he is our beloved brother, Paul. The man who was just confronted in front of everybody like this calls Paul a beloved brother because of the wisdom given to him, and he refers to Paul's writings as Scripture in 2 Peter 3. So we don't have an exact understanding of how Peter responded to this, at least at the time, but later on, he's still a beloved brother. He's writing Scripture as God inspires it through him. He's got wisdom from the Lord. This is what's supposed to happen. This is how it's supposed to look when, when we are together in the gospel, when we are joined in fellowship together that 
We're not glorified. (laughs) We're not the ones exalted. Jesus is in his work. Father, we praise you, Lord, for that truth and that amazing work that you do in us. God, your power is immeasurable. God, it's unfathomable because you have created everything. Lord, you've done everything. You've held everything together. And Lord, not only have you made us, you've remade us, God. When we follow Jesus in repentance and faith, God, we, we deny ourselves and we take up our cross and follow him. God, you remake us all over again. And Lord, you make us into creatures who glorify you, who seek your glory. God, I pray that you would enable that and, and use that and, and, and bring that about in the life of every one of your, brother, your, your people, our brothers and sisters here. God, that that would bring glory to you, that, that you have taken people who refused to glorify you, to reject your glory. God, you've changed us and made us into those who bring glory to you. Recognize you for who you are and what you've done. We acknowledge it and we proclaim it to others, God. Lord, help us, help us to live that way, Lord. Help us to live for your glory, God, because that is the picture of how you change us and how your gospel saves us. Lord, why that's the true gospel, the only true one that comes from you. We praise you for our Savior, Jesus. We look forward to his return. We ask this in his name. Amen.